Alright folks, welcome back to Unstandardized English. I am J.B. Gerald. I am the host of this show that's about epistemological whiteness and racial-linguistic ideologies. I think I want to change that. I think it's not epistemological whiteness. I think it's white epistemology. Because anytime you have an adjective in front of whiteness, it implies that there's some version of whiteness that is not that. It's like saying, um, you know, toxic whiteness or whatever. That would mean that there is a version of whiteness that is good. And as a system, there is no good version. Um, it's not the same as like toxic masculinity because masculinity can be good. You can do good things within masculinity, even though it's uh, all constructed. But anyway, so I want to change it to white epistemology and racial linguistic ideologies. There you go. That's the tagline now. I'm going to change it on my Twitter page. Um, so this one today is about, uh, well, it's about the same thing it's always about. I'm talking to a white academic about their journey through, around, to um, thinking about whiteness differently um, in their life and also in their work as a professor and also in their work as an administrator because um she has all three of these roles. So, well, person isn't really a role. You get what I'm saying. Um, her name is Dr. Rachel Dennis, And I think you'll enjoy this conversation, especially by the end, when we really get sort of freewheeling and talk about all the ways these things intersect. So, you know, I think you'll enjoy this conversation. I hope that you do. There's only a few episodes left this season, if you can believe it. This is uh, the end of March when I'm putting this up. There will be two in April. There will be two in May. And then there will be one more in early June. So five more after this, this season. So, folks, welcome back to Unstandardized English. I am J.P. Gerald. I hope you all can hear me, but I think my microphone's turned up enough. I'm here with Dr. Rachel Emus. Is that right? It yep. is right. Okay. Could, could have been Ima or something. It could have been anything. Any yes. of those vowels can be pronounced however you want them to be. Yes. Yeah. So, um, and we're going to talk about a few things, but I'm going to let her uh, explain some of the work that she does, and then we'll get into what we get into. So, all right. Some of the work that I do. Wow. You leaving? must have been asked these things before. Yes, but it's generally like such a tailored audience that, you know, I give my whole spiel based on that. So what do I work on? So I am an assistant teaching professor at the School of Public Affairs and Administration at Rutgers Newark. Um, and so with that title, teaching is my primary responsibility. I am very lucky to be able to do that. It, um, it is what I love to do, and I really enjoy teaching. Um, I also direct our master's programs, which I shockingly also enjoy, um, which is very, I guess, rare for faculty to actually enjoy the administrative service, but I do. Um, my research itself, uh, my dissertation was around national sustainability strategies. And since then, I've actually gone from looking at the national level to really looking at the very local level. Um, most recently, looking at urban food systems, um, because that is a critical illustration and area for sustainability in uh, local communities. And this was all narrowed down long before the pandemic, although obviously it's sort of highlighted the need for uh, greater food access. I think I'll leave it there because yeah, that was like a solid seven sentences. Wow, and I have a, I have a short bio, it's like three sentences and my long bio is like a whole page. Yes. Uh, with it, you know, because they're just like, no, we want to say more about you. And then it's it's been, it's really weird on Zoom because they're like talking about you while, while you're looking at them, and it's just like, yep, that's me. This is my face. Um, because <laughs> uh, they're just like reading an entire page about you. Anyway, um, so 
that's all interesting. Um, and I don't know that much about it. I mean, I know the broad strokes of these things. What are some of the, you know, things that you have found that make things, you know, make it easier for localities or nations, but since you're talking more recently about localities to make things sustainable. Folks, we're not going to have the entire conversation about this, <laughs> but just, you know, everybody who comes on, we, we, we do have to get into their work a little bit before people go, I don't want to listen to sustainability. Look, it's my show, so we're going to do it. Anyway. That's all right. Most people find sustainability boring until they understand what it is. And then they're like, oh, shoot it's everything. And it's like, yes, it is everything. Correct. Um, so the whole thing about sustainability is all decisions have impacts, right? And so traditionally, when governments generally lead these public decisions for development, they did so to pursue economic development. And so the idea of sustainable development is where you no longer sacrifice social equity or environmental protection for the pursuit of economic development, that you seek to balance those three core goals, the environment, equity, and the economy throughout the entirety of the process. And so sustainability really is in everything we do, we just aren't aware of it. And until it's made explicit in the decision-making process, it's not really successfully working towards sustainability because if you're not being really clear that you are trying to balance these three things, odds are you're just perpetuating the status quo. You're just pursuing economic development. And obviously economic development is built with inputs and resources whether they are human or natural. And thus they often come at the expense of social equity and or environmental protection. So it yeah. is an, it's a complete upending of how we've made public policy decisions. And it's really difficult. And there is no one day where we wake up and we're like, ha, ah, we've achieved it. What's next? It's a, it's a completely new paradigm of how we think about decisions. So in terms of that sort of thing, uh, we weren't talking about this 100 years ago. Um, I mean, not in the literature, as they say. Um, and I was watching The Nick recently, because they just put it on HBO Max, which I had watched when it came out, but noticing more things now that I've been doing research and stuff. And there's this little aside where they're talking about oil, whatever. And they were saying that, like, you know, they used to just dispose of the crude oil in the rivers. And they're like, well, you know, that's just, and they're saying it like, oh, that's a smart thing to do, um, right? And now we're looking at, and the show's putting these things in there because it's kind of funny because you're just like, oh, it's ridiculous. But there's going to be things we all, I mean, we, people who pay attention, you know, or people who care about these things know about the, the you know, horrors of climate change and so forth. But do you think there is, this, this is a question that I don't know that you've had before, so be ready. Um, do you think that there is a thing that is just, and I don't just mean accepted by capitalist companies, I mean accepted by just the layman, the laywoman, the lay non-binary person, right? Uh, you know, yeah, the lay person um, that we all do that we're going to look back on in 20 years and be like, oh my God, I cannot believe that that was just widely accepted, right? Again, I'm not talking about companies just polluting and we know it's bad, but they don't care because they're just getting tax breaks or whatever or something like that. This is yes. Yeah, so. Yes, of course. I hope so. Otherwise, we haven't made any progress. But do you, do you have a clue what the, some of those things might be? What would um, you predict? My guess is, so I do not know the details. I am not that smart and I am grateful to learn from others who, who are experts in that area. But my guess is, is a lot of how we use and produce plastics, what we do with plastics themselves will need to fundamentally shift because the science that we are learning is horrifying. Um, especially regarding like microplastics, the fact that we now have very early research that shows 
um, that evidence of microplastics are showing up in vitro, like in uteruses that are still in the womb, unborn children, right? That's mind blowing. And these are man-made particles, but we understand that microplastics are, can never be removed from the system. Um, who knows what's going to happen with us, like colonizing space. Like that's going to be a whole thing that I've never even, you know, thought to think about. Like I have not even put it on my mental to-do list. Um, but you know, if you think about common recycling practices from household recycling nowadays, especially in the U S our parents did not grow up with recycling as an everyday habit. It is something that we were taught. Actually, I remember in elementary school yeah. that we were taught because people understood if you teach a child, they go home and they help to tell their parents how to be better people. Right. And a lot of the research around K through 12 healthy food access in schools builds on that research, actually, because kids will shame their parents for doing the wrong thing. And it worked. My parents still give me a hard time when I'm like, is that where that goes? Is that, are we going to separate that? Um, and so, you know, there's this generational understanding of the way the world works and the need to like unlearn what we didn't grow up knowing. So I remember. Our, our parents had to unlearn just throwing everything in the trash can and, and not thinking twice. Just reminds me of Captain Planet. Um, oh my God, yes. <laughs> and perhaps the only theme song with the phrase torn asunder <laughs> in the lyrics. Dude. No, yeah, I know. He says, put, he says, sorry, he says, put asunder, not torn asunder, but asunder. Like the word asunder is in the lyrics gonna help him put asunder bad guys who like to loot and plunder uh we had some it, really good cartoons we, we did we did have some cartoons. there's some there's some really like intelligent cartoons now but they're not they're, they're just different they're different i spent too much time in a recent episode talking about karma san diego so i should probably not go down this path because okay. i'll be there forever but, i think i listened to part of that episode yeah so. with the trivia episode um and uh, but but i'm gonna go a little farther down the path and point out that they managed to have uh, you know, people from entire continents, but then they had, uh, <laughs> they had someone, you, you know, when it was made, because it was made right when it was made and the woman was from the Soviet Union, but then it, the Soviet Union fell and they had to change where she was from. But, um, <laughs> just thought that was funny. Uh, I don't was, remember that. It was made in like, have... it was, it was like 1989. And then, it was, yeah, so it said, anyway. Um, so, that's an interesting point about teaching kids and they bring things home to their parents because you know there are parents who don't want to listen but a lot of parents do want to because it's assigned to school well okay i'll help you with this one of the things that's this is a segue watch this one of the things that is happening in schools and i don't mean in this pandemic year but just generally in these days is that schools are working on teaching about anti-racism, teaching about different aspects of whiteness and stuff. Although they usually refuse to actually call it whiteness because they're white. But uh, and then I I wonder. I don't know that this has been researched because it's going to take time, and you know how academia is. By the time we find out, it'll be a decade from now. But what I suspect is the case, and there have been, I'm sure, a million studies launched on this, is that the growing you know, understanding of anti-racism and, and so forth and the way that it takes years and practice and so on and being taught at schools, school systems, whatever. And the fact that you get families that are resisting it. The only reason families are resisting it is because their kids are telling them about it. That doesn't necessarily mean the kids are complaining. Some of them may be, some of them may not be. From the stories, I'm only reading about the parents complaining. That doesn't mean the kids aren't complaining. I'm just pointing out that I'm talking about the parents. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I'm saying is the kids are bringing their assignments home to their parents the same way that we brought recycling home to our parents. Uh, I'm not saying it's the same thing, but 
I do think that that's interesting because so much of these issues when it comes to you know, understanding issues of identity and oppression, you know, a lot of what, I mean, they can obviously be reinforced by schools, they can be, you know, unpacked by schools, um, but a lot of it starts at home, you know, understandably. And the same way that there were parents who probably got annoyed when we taught them stuff about recycling or whatever it was, um, the parent, the reason that there's pushback is because these parents don't want to unlearn this shit. <laughs> and uh, I do think that that ties into some of the things we're going to talk about a little bit because what's happening, these things are being taught to kids, whatever, but there's all of these adults who have to try to unlearn this shit as adults and put it into place 30 plus years old, you know, and it is hard to give up on all of the things that you didn't even realize you were holding on to, you know. Um, and it's hard enough for me, and I'm not white, uh, but then to learn these things and be like, oh wait, I can't get out of this body. <laughs> so what can actually happen, not just being white, but being white in a system that is based on whiteness and just, you know, just more, you know, and in schools that, you know, and, and all of these things, and like you're, you're you and others, but you are the representative here, uh, are in positions where, you know, you have to unlearn these things and then turn around and teach. So it seems like a, I don't wanna say, I don't wanna overemphasize how hard it is because I'm sure black people will roll their eyes at that. Um, it's like, oh, it's so hard for you, but it takes effort. Let's put it, that, it it's effortful. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So how is that going? <laughs> <laughs> um, so effortful is a good descriptor. Um, you know, I like, I think that the phrase colorblind or colorblindness is very useful because to see the system, to see the world as it is, is to acknowledge white supremacy at its core. And when white people are not doing that, they are choosing, you know, or have, have lived their whole life colorblind. Um, they are blind to the white supremacist system. But they've pushed that further. And, and they, they call it a color evasiveness now because people are pointing out that it's a choice. But I get what you're saying. Right. Um. <laughs> that's, that's fair. It's, and so it's so funny. So I used to think about like the phrase, like, um, rose colored glasses, right. right. And, and like removing the glasses is choosing to see the world as it is. Right. Um, because it is a choice, especially now, like, with the internet, with 24-7 television, with all of this expansive information, it is very much a choice to live in a bubble of your own making and to ignore the realities, not just how other people lived, but the realities of the world that we all inhabit. And so it, it should be uncomfortable like yeah yes go ahead sit in that discomfort like your whole life has been your comfort zone because you've chosen to ignore the way the world is and um that's okay think about how much you've made other people uncomfortable go ahead and like me out here with my anxiety about everything i actually find and this is something I, I have, of course, thought about. Um, my anxiety and how I like replay conversations I have, like social anxiety in that way, is actually a useful tool because it allows and forces me to evaluate how honestly I'm living and interacting. Like, 
the fact that I replay conversations in my head, not by choice, because that's what my brain does. Um, it gives me the opportunity to use that to like be introspective and not just get lost in the anxiety of it, but like, am I learning from this? Am I better than I was? Am I the, becoming the person that I want to be? Um, am I being respectful? And, you know, am I acknowledging the world? And it, it is obviously uncomfortable. Yeah. So I, I, there was this great quote that um, a colleague of mine shared in a webinar, however many months ago, because pandemic time, um, and he said something to the effect, I'm, I'm poorly paraphrasing it, but he said something to the effect of, um, they're called growing pains, so it will be painful to grow, right? And, and that's a necessary component of moving past who you were. So what's interesting from, from that is to think specifically about some of the spaces, not literally in pandemic, but you know, spaces you, you exist in. There's your school, right? But then there's also your field, you know? So like, we can talk about each of these separately. They're related, obviously, but like, so at your school, how does, how, how does this come into play? Not because that, that, that most, that first part was mostly about inside of you. Um, and then like, when you think about your school and your work, you know, how does it come into play? Cause you're not like a race teacher. So, you know, this is not, you really could avoid it in terms of doing it in your job. Like you could avoid it. I, other people do avoid it. So That's I see what your point is, right? Yes, I, I respect and understand that point. But the real reason I've even pursued, like when I think about how did I come to this point in my self-awareness and, and understanding of the world and, and just like an honest look at all of those things, it's because of my students. It is because of my work. Um, I moved to New Jersey in January of 2016 to, for this job, to teach at Rutgers University Newark, which for the past 32 years has been ranked the number one most diverse campus in the country. I think we're tied for first place this year. Let me not overstate that. So for 31 years, number one. Um, now we're number one tied. I was unprepared or underprepared to serve my students without doing harm. And I realized that very quickly. Um, I, I, if I know that I am harming my students and the community that I want to serve, it is my job as a human to figure out how to be better and to not do that, to avoid harm, to minimize harm when I can't avoid it. And, and so I've spent the past five-ish years on this sort of like very accelerated journey. Um, I would say because I had no choice, but I do understand that other people choose to not do that. But me with this brain, who I am, I had no choice. It, it was critically important to me to wake up every day and try to be better, just be a better human. And this is part of that process. So what did you do? I mean, that's like a whole, you know, a montage of five years, um, cute 80s music. It, so this is where that anxiety becomes really helpful, purposeful, um, because replaying the conversations I had, the interactions that I had allowed me to really parse out the problematic elements. Um, and from that, try to 
do the research, right? To respect the fact that I don't know what I, I needed to learn what I don't know and then begin to know it and um, to, to be willing to learn. I think as an academic, once, you know, we're in this area, people don't like to say that they don't know something, even though we legit go to school for over a decade to learn stuff. So like, of course you don't know things until you are taught them, whether by life or by another person. And so be being willing to learn about myself, about others, about the world, um, teaching myself before asking, before engaging with someone, understanding that one person doesn't speak for an entire group of people, um, respecting that good intentions are not good enough, that I'm responsible for the impacts that I make. And if something is poorly received and I need to revise, you know, the delivery. Um, probably I think the hardest lesson for, I will say white people, but like, uh, I don't know. Again, I'm not trying to speak for all of them. Just knowing that it's not always about me, that white is not the default setting that white supremacy is. And so respecting those distinctions is something that um, is challenging, but it's only challenging because I've never challenged that assumption. And so the more frequently I do it, it is a muscle and I will, it will grow in strength and it will be easier and I will be better for it. So speaking of supremacy, you're in charge of the master's program. Um, it's a segue, right? Um, and, you know, on this diverse campus. So how does that play out? I mean, with these things that you're learning and the fact that, you know, that's a lot of responsibility of these adult people who are taking all of these programs on. So, I mean, that's, there's one thing as a responsibility in the classroom or in the lecture hall or the Zoom room, but, and that's not nothing, but, you know, in terms of like administration, like I often find that, you know, you'll get really committed educators, be they professors or K-12, whatever, but then the administrator won't be there. Or you get a really committed administrator, but then the teacher won't be there. And it's so rare to get both. If you had both, you could really solve the problem. <laughs> but so rarely do they have both and they, this is this is this is on purpose right because like, they don't they don't want them to 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 meet up and 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 amass power against these things um so in terms of the way that this comes into play as an administrator then like how, how are some of the things that you've had to learn really affected your you know administrative responsibilities So academia will reflect the so, the social norms of a society. It will refer, it will include and encapsulate and illustrate all of these structural forms of oppression that exist outside of the academy. Um, so as an administrator, I have this unique opportunity to push for structural and normative change. Um, I am lucky in many ways that Rutgers Newark is fairly aware of its role in uh, dismantling systemic oppression and how it can make those changes, but it is an institution like any other institution. And there will always be pushback and there will always be evasiveness um, when the institution is has more responsibility or fault in a situation, right? It's a lot easier to point fingers. But I 
how do I say this? Um, I make decisions that are the right thing to do. And then if I need to ask forgiveness from higher ups, I just do that. And if it never comes up, I just keep on keeping on and I change the policies and I work with my committees to just do the right thing. And I learn when those are not the right things. Like if I think it's the right thing and it's not, then we figure out how to do it. It's, it's not that I know these things, but like I will keep pushing until we are more transparent about like some, like some of the hidden curriculum that doesn't need to be hidden. Um, you know, it's creating language in our handbook, which is similar to what I put in my syllabus about acknowledging the importance of this degree program in dismantling oppression and pushing for a better world because we're in public administration. So it, it's about the administration and implementation of public policy. Just because something is legal doesn't make it ethical. And so if all we teach our students, if all our curriculum reflects is administrative law, we're not teaching public service values. We're not talking to them about the realities. Our students won't be prepared to actually make the world better. They'll just be prepared to perpetuate the status quo. But then how, because so at my school, uh, also a public school, um, they, I bring this up a lot because it's been going on for a while and I've kind of given up on it. So, you know, sometime in the fall, they put out a call for people to join the anti-racism committee. It's going to be the committee. Anybody in the school could have joined. So I joined. And they broke us into smaller groups and smaller groups and smaller groups. But like, because I'm not actually an academic, like I'm a student, right? I have a day job. So I can't be showing up these middle of the day calls. Um, but that's not the point I'm making. It's just me that I haven't been able to go very often. Um, and especially because they don't get anything done in these academics. Like, what do you talk? Just get to the point. Um, but anyway, because people like to hear themselves talk. Yes. Uh, you know, by May, we're supposed to come up with recommendations that the president might take on. Uh, and I feel like the farthest we're ever going to get is we might add paragraph to the general syllabi uh, about these sorts of things. So that's that's nice. But we were trying to, and I don't think the other stuff, which is really the, the other stuff is the teeth. Putting it in there doesn't, you know, whatever. But it's the teeth that really matters because we wanted to also put in there, and I don't think it's going to happen, but also I haven't been to one of these in a while. Um, like make it so if you as a student find that this class is not actually living up to this, you can do these things. <laughs> um, but then we couldn't figure out the right mechanism or more accurately, we didn't think they would let us figure out the right mechanism because um, we're not the people with the power, right? Uh, so, you know, because like, let's say they put this in there and it says this class is committed to anti-oppressive, curricula, grading, whatever, whatever you want to put in there. And then below that, it says, if you feel that this class is not living up to these standards, please contact, I don't know, some person, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that something's going to happen. Uh, just that there's an outlet to the student, because I think even just putting that in there would make some students feel a little bit more supported. Not that I don't want it to be, you know, but the point is, I, I, I don't know that we can guarantee that the professor would be like, you know, recommended or something like that. But like, you know, because no one reads that part of the handbook, uh, you know, when they take the syllabus. The syllabus are like, all right, what do I have to read? Okay. And then at the end, it's like, don't plagiarize. Like no one reads that part. So. <laughs> So, you know, the academic honesty, it's always in there. No one, no one reads it, uh, you know, 
it's like the signs on the subway that say don't go on the tracks it's like if you if you needed the sign (laughs) (laughs) you know um but anyway all that is to say like it's it's hard because you need the policies but but it's the like you're saying the implementation of the policies that is really key and you know especially with real change and substantive like challenging of the status quo everyone always gets bogged down in in what i said earlier today something about like procedural chicanery you know just like well it has to happen this way okay well this person has to be alerted okay and then by the end i'm just like i give up um and and that they they want me to give up that's the point (laughs) uh I don't know if I really had a, a question. It's just, it's just like, <laughs> how, how, you know, how do you, because knowing exactly how to work through the, the procedural nonsense is, is really, I think, half the battle or more than half of the battle. Um, and I don't know. I mean, like, I understand. Yeah. So it's the same way that like, you know, knowing how to get something approved by IRB is half the battle, but then also realizing that you're not going to be able to get something that you really want to do through IRB. So it's just like, well, what's the point? Um, and I think it's I think it's more similar to, and it's not, but my understanding of the structural problems, it's more similar to sexual harassment complaints, Title Nine, right? There's a whole system. They federal government even tied money to it. They got data requirements. They got laws. And it all still depends on people. There is still someone with the coordinator title who is responsible for that. But that person is employed by the institution that is being complained about. Yeah. Yeah. Because like part of me thinks like, you know, working with the school, cause I was interested to see what they would do and I kind of lost faith, but like what, what, you know, cause what I was talking about is basically that it was like, we're creating some sort of ombudsman, right. You know, for like racism, right. Or whatever. Um, and then it's just going to be the same thing. <laughs> um, and the question is, is it worth more worthwhile to put more effort into that sort of thing, which would be good to have on the books because it would show some sort of financial commitment, blah, blah, blah. Um, or to build up more of the like support communities, you know, because like the office of like, for example, disability services is there not, I mean, although they do this, like with discrimination and oppression, it's more for the students to get services they need, right? So maybe it's more creating something like that. I when you call, you know, call the Office of Racism Services, but like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, something that's more like people whose job is to support students who are in these situations. Um, and because I don't, yeah, like creating a, a Title Ten person for like racism, right? You know, like you're just going to end up with the same thing. Um, an employee of the school who has been hired to protect the school. <laughs> right. I mean, one thing that institutions can do, and this also, right, we're speaking from a very unique perspective, being public institutions in the Northeast. Unfortunately, these are relatively progressive institutions, which yeah. is a, a reflection of a real not great situation um they could hire more black faculty and actually create cultures in the organization that um respect them and i think that would be hugely helpful um but again it's not just about recruitment it's about actually changing the culture of an organization to be supportive and respectful of those faculty because that's not what's happening. Yeah, I mean, you get the situation, I mean, and then even when you think about like a private institution, you say, okay, well, they, they have more ability to change things, right, to some extent. But 
on the other hand, they also have a lot more donors who have things that they have to worry about. So when although they're not going to get their like federal money pulled, like they get some small amount of federal money, but not enough, like that's not where they're getting their money from, right? Um, you know, they worry usually, usually hyperbolically, because I don't actually like this. I hear that you hear this a lot that people that like private institutions are worried about their donors are gonna whatever if they do something anti racist. It's like, I don't think you have that many donors who are gonna pull their money because of that. Like, I think that they're just in your head about it. Um, and what it is is because they're in the mindset where they have to grow, they must grow, that if they would do it down slight, like a little bit, then you know, whatever. But, um, so they wait until it actually seems like it's financially viable to like take Woodrow Wilson off the school. Um, <laughs> I, I, I did go to Princeton, so um, what you heard in that episode. Um, yeah. So, so I'm saying like even though the public institutions have more power, have have certain constraints, like the private ones, I feel like they make up their own constraints because um, they don't actually want to change anything. Um, People find reasons to do what they were going to do anyway. Right. Right. You know, um, and that's that's a big part of the issue. But what about like in so it's obvious in like the the master's program that you're running, but like in terms of the research you do and sustainability, like obviously I can see how this is connected. But when you talk to people in your field, um, are they willing to even consider this clearly important aspect? Because sustainability clearly has you know disproportionate impacts. Um, obviously, there's some. But you know damn well that there's a lot of people who are just trying to do their research and not think about these things. Yeah. So I think that there is a generational divide in how they think about the relationship or how they, how do I put this, how they operationalize equity. Because equity is in the definition of sustainability. So anyone who studies sustainability has no choice but to acknowledge the importance of social equity. But will they name white supremacy, right? Will they name um, the structural oppression? Will they name anti-Blackness? Will they, will they really understand what equity means in this context? And I think that, you know, it's, it's, although I frame it as a yes, no question, very little in this world uh, offer dichotomous choices, right? It's almost always a continuum. So this is one of those where people's understanding of equity is unique to them and, and how they approach it. I generally do not work well with people, I'm sure you can imagine, who um, choose to continue in their ignorance, especially if their research area discusses equity and then they, their explanation of it um, is extremely limited and, and sort of ignores the realities. You know, because what's interesting, I mean, yeah, I know I'm, you know, we're both, you know, somewhat young, I guess, although, like, I'm going to be much older than you when I finish my degree than you were, but um, when I was learning some concepts, right, like, I hadn't heard of translanguaging when I started my degree, not because I have a problem with it, I just literally hadn't heard of it, and I didn't right. really understand it. Um, and at first, my first thought was, I don't get it. <laughs> um, I don't get what it means. And then a professor came in and just had one of those like hammer drop lectures. Mm -hmm. right? And I was just like, I was just like, oh, oh, I was like, we, we were in a group chat. And I was like, texting like that. I was like, she is just going here. Um, and I was like, I, I okay. Um, like I'm not any kind of expert on it, but it's important for the for the field. And you know, and then thinking about racial linguistic ideologies, like these things in language teaching are, are really, you know, they're really important for anyone who's paying attention. But like 
I you know have a VP of advocacy role for New York State TESOL and you know we just put out a survey about like pandemic and remote learning and stuff. It's not really about language teachers, but they're all language teachers. So, um, and the things that these people say, <laughs> I'm like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's, and this is just like the general populace of language teachers around New York state, right? And so that moment where I'm, I was willing to sit back and be surprised and a little bit unsettled by a new piece of information, you know, that part of it was I was obviously in school, right? So like I wanted to learn stuff, but like also like, you know, the, the people I think who have attained a certain level of comfort in their career, if something is going to pretend, like I think people aren't always conscious of this, but I think that there is a certain part of people that knows deep down that this will force them to do things very differently. <laughs> and they don't want that to happen. You see this a lot in language teaching. I'm sure it happens in your field in any kind of academic thing where like a new concept comes along and it's not, and it's a concept that starts to resonate because it's not a new concept. It's just putting words to a concept a lot of people understood, right? It's just sort of naming a feeling. You know, a lot of theory is like that. It's naming something that people are like, I just, I just, I just put that, uh, uh, we really put that idea together, you know? Um, and that's what, what scares people, I think, is when they, they name, the feeling is named, and instead of it just being a feeling that people were whispering about, now it's named, and now they're like, oh no, oh no, I must deny this vociferously. So, you know, it's interesting that this doesn't matter what the field is, because like sustainability obviously has direct connections to, to, aspects of equity, not just racism, but all sorts of them. And obviously when I'm talking about my original field that I don't actually teach in anymore, but whatever, um, in terms of language teaching, like these things obviously directly relate to, like I, I, uh, I read articles that are like, you know, these people were really discriminated on based on their language. So anyway, and I'm like, you're so close. <laughs> I'm like, okay, who were the people? <laughs> what what was their body? <laughs> you know, just like you, you're, like you understand that there is oppression occurring. And then, you know, you'll just be like, oh, it's just because they said the word a different way. And I'm just like, sort of, but not. anyway. Um, because if, if you acknowledge, if you name anti-blackness, if you name white, you know, the, the, you know, the way that whiteness is organized, you know, and conceptualization of it, you have to do something about it. <laughs> Cause you, you can't name it and then not, like some people will name it and <laughs> not do anything about it. But I think when people don't intend to do something about it, they will name it in as distant a way as possible. Mm -hmm. So, because what I saw a lot this summer, um, and the thing I wrote the other day, is that when I wrote that article about the pandemic pods, a lot of people jumped in to say that, you know, it was systemic racism, right? And I'm like, yes. And they're like, so therefore, I have nothing Can't to do, do anything with about it. it. And just like, ah. <laughs> um, which is often why I tend to refer to it as whiteness, um, because whiteness as constructed is the same thing as white supremacy because there was no version of whiteness that was constructed to be not supreme. But anyway, right. I mean, that's the main part. That's of why it was built. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I tend to say that not just because it's correct, but also because it's very difficult to get away from that. Yep. <laughs> you can't go anywhere. Um, even white supremacy, sometimes people will be like, well, yes, those white supremacists over there are bad. And it's like, let's just stop. Um, so when I say you can't name it and not do anything about it, I say you can't name it authentically. Right. And not do something. You may not succeed in what you're trying to do and what you do may not work. But like if you're naming these things, genuinely naming these things in authentic fashion and authentic doesn't mean it can't change because what you name now, 10 years from now, it'll be a different phrase. And some people don't like that, but that's just how it is. Um, you got to do something. <laughs> and you know I think that 
Um, and the enforced precarity of the industry and so forth doesn't help, but I don't. And then, so I don't know. I, I, I think it's, it's, it's all stacked up so that people are not willing to actually do it. But what I have found through the work I've done um, in speaking about this is that there's a lot, at least in language teaching, there's a lot more people who are interested in and supportive of challenging these things than the people who think there aren't as many of us would like to believe. Mm. Like there's, there's more of us, they just want us to stay separate. <laughs> and the useful thing, no, not useful, but one of the side effects of us all, of everyone being separate is that the powerful people are separate from each other too. So we, so that's true. We can spend our time connecting with each other. And, you know, I don't, you know, they're all, they've already moved on from the Black Lives Matter and so forth, but they, there has been, you know, they can't really completely forget about this, this time, I think. Um, they, they, the backlash, sure, but backlash is not forgetting. Like, you know, there's always a backlash, but like, that's not forgetting. The, 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 the bad part is forgetting. Hmm. And I think at least this time, they can't forget. And also there was so much that happened in 2020 and not just the pandemic, but in terms of racial justice and so forth that, and in terms of academia to sort of put a pin in the whole discussion that the way academia is, there is going to be so much literature over the next 46 years, because that's how long it's gonna to take to come out <laughs> that, you know, we won't be able to forget about it because it's going to keep showing up in journals over the next several decades. Um, or maybe the data is being gathered now and then it'll be written about and then it'll be submitted to journals at the end of the decade. <laughs> um, and then they'll be like, and then it'll have that thing where it says like in June of 2020. <laughs> 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 We're going to have to describe oh. what's happening. Because uh, people, yeah, oh, that's so true. That is, mm-hmm. so I, I, I agree with your point that like naming it means you have to do something, but more when you name something, not doing something is doing something. And it's that realization of oh, so this is a thing. And now if I choose inaction, I'm making a choice. Whereas ignorance begets ignorance. It allows inaction inherently. But if you name something, it immediately becomes, oh, well, now if I do nothing, and we can think of, you know, a gazillion examples, small stakes, right? Hello, see something, say something. If you do not see something, you there is no, you have nothing to say, right? And and the reverse is true. Like if you name something, then not doing anything about it is a choice as compared to just like living life in your happy ignorance. But no institution will shift towards real justice without internal change of the members of that institution. So for anyone who's complaining about systemic oppression and structural racism, we, we have structures that reflect the norms of society. Structures only evolve if the people push them to evolve. And I'm not saying that the structures aren't real, they are, but they are real and they perpetuate because they benefit those in power. And they're made up of the people in power. Like they are the structure. Right. Like who Back do they think the structure is? Title IX coordinator example. Like it, all of this is within our power to change if we actually truly want it. Well, that's a big if. Yes. Because it we're would, living through the if. It would, it would require people to relinquish power. And no one gives up power willingly. Right. 
That's a Frederick Douglass thing. Right. Power is taken. If we, yeah, power, I don't want to get the quote wrong, but without, not, it doesn't happen without a demand. Um, so, you know, we, we're going to have to keep demanding things. It, it's, it's, it's just sort of, you know, sometimes I think about what I'm going to do in the future and what I even want to bother with all this old stuff. Um, and, you know, because there's, there's vanishingly few schools that are really going to, one of the things I'm going to want to know if I were to look at schools next year is like, how have they been handling this? Especially with the work that I do. Like, I don't want to come in and, and like anyone who hires me, if they were to, if this is what I end up trying to do, is going to hire someone who will be very clearly have done, been doing this sort of stuff publicly on the internet and in places, right? So they know who I am, right? Or they will. Um, and so they're going to know, I'm going to know, I'm either being brought in as a token or I'm being brought in because they're really trying to do stuff and they want me to be part of it. Mm -hmm. And I have had so many jobs <laughs> where I haven't been this public person before that, where I go in and I put my head down and then I look up and I realize that it's a bad place to be. Yeah. Um, but then I can't leave because I have to like, you know. Pay rent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now it's like a child. So, you know, it's like, there's a lot to consider and it's, 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 you know, you have to hope that, that there's room to really do stuff because, you know, the, the, I think about the old motto that Facebook had, um, it turns out that, well, the point is they used to say move fast and break things and what they broke was democracy. But, you know, like <laughs> it's, <laughs> I do think the, the idea of moving fast and breaking things is, is useful when it comes to some of these structures because you can't really break these structures down really slowly. Like we, we're gonna have to try, we're gonna have to try and tough it out forever. But like the structures will put, will, will continue to reinforce themselves if we take, 10 years to consider every aspect of it. Um, and we, that's what we're gonna have to do because they're not gonna give up easily. But it's just like, I, I just, I don't know. I know it makes sense to be methodical in, in, in academic pursuits, but I also know that those are the tools that the system gave us and therefore they're not going to break the system down. So. That's just like the Title IX coordinator, right? Um, yes, I am sure that the federal government is very interested in, in ending sexual harassment. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> yes, I love the, uh, you know, like reference to Audre Lorde with the, the tools in the house, but there was a lot of nothing going on last year. A lot of nothing. So much nothing. So many workshops, right? Like, we are not going to dismantle systemic racism with diversity and inclusion workshops, y'all. We can stop. We're good. Like, but we have the internet. Um, what's next? Show me change take something apart, like I mean, do something. But that's, that's, I mean, that's where I'm sort of putting, I don't know what to do with it because like, I, I want to put forth an idea, you know, academically, but I don't want to go through the journal process because then no one's going to see it for six years. And, you know, and then maybe all, all of six people will see it. Like, you know, if I have an idea now, I don't know, what, I mean, I just end up putting it in like medium or something, right? Because like, you know, I, uh, the, the, the book and the dissertation, you know, um, it's a combination, there's a whole bunch of stuff in there, but the, the academic aspect of it, the stuff that school is requiring me to do, you know, there's a lot of stuff I've got. It's like part autoethnography about how I came to create the classes that I'm teaching. Um, and then I'm going to interview people who were in the classes. Not everybody, listeners, but I may contact you if you took the class. Um, 
and interview them about their, uh, you know, their experiences and, you know, how they, white teachers, have gone and tried to change things. Because the goal is to be like, here's what these people chose to do in their context. Maybe you can try to do these things. Because to me, I'm actually trying to, I'm, I'm not looking at a problem and being like, look at this problem. Um, and I don't really think that you can win the statistical argument against racism. Like I don't, I used to think that, like if I just find some number, like the implicit dissociation test, and I don't blame Harvard for that. Like they're, this is from the 1995. It's not their fault that people did all this stuff. Um, <laughs> it was like 1995, like they, you know, that, that was a long time ago. Um, the fact that we're still doing it, it's like, all right, okay. Um, but, uh, cause I took that class, I took that test in like college, you know, it's <laughs> a long time ago. Um, but the point is, uh, I thought that I could come up with some number and that if we improve that, but then I said, as soon as you come up with the number and I forget which law this is, right. As soon as you come up with a, 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 a measurement that people will look at beating that measurement more than the thing that it's supposed to measure. Right, it's like it's just like a standardized test, right? You know, I got a fourteen hundred. I got a this. I got a this more than it matters what you actually learn because that's the problem. Um, this is a very long way of saying that uh, I don't think that I'm going to be able to say, "See, I did this thing like some randomized control experiment that I, you know, decreased racism by four percent or some shit like that," <laughs> you know. It, mm -hmm. this, the racism score went down by 0.13 and it was statistically significant, right? Like, I'm not doing that. Um, the best you're going to get with this sort of thing is create just creating a proxy, like income or something, and some correlational thing, right? But then you're not really, then you're just measuring stuff that's already out there. Anyway, the point is, I moved far away from quant because I really think that the I'm using as few numbers as possible in my book because once you start using numbers, people will say, well, actually this number, actually this, and it's just like, uh, and, it, and what I'm trying to do with the work, aside from just set fire to language teaching in general, but to show like, okay, so I actually had some white people in front of me and I helped them come up with ideas and then they did some stuff. I don't know what they did. Right. Uh, I mean, I know what some of them did, but uh, I don't know if it worked or not. I have no idea if their plans worked. Right. And whether they worked or not, I'm going to include. And if it's if it didn't work, I'm going to include that it didn't work. And then I have recommendations either way. But the point is, I want to see work that's genuinely like, here is what we tried to do to genuinely substantively challenge the status quo. And here is how well we did at it. And here is what I might have done better. Here's what I did well in genuinely trying to challenge status quo. I want, I don't know if this is a, I don't think it's a framework. I, I maybe it's a methodology, but like where it's like you actually are trying to substantively, you know, dismantle structures. And it's like, he, what what is your study that you are developing to substantively dismantle structures or what i say is demolish rather than, than dismantle because dismantling takes a long time um so yeah, call it demolition studies or something like that um <laughs> because like i just like I'm, I'm tired of this you know even and i don't blame especially like racialized scholars who are measuring you know, things and harm and so forth. Like, you know, the, the, it's, it's not a stop. But like, you know, we need, we need, especially for academics, we get all these credentials and all this, and we, we are supposed to know what we're talking about, then we should be able to operationalize potential solutions, right? We, it, we, they may not succeed, that's fine. But we should be out there trying different solutions and seeing if they work. And if they do work, fine. If they don't work, you try something else. And that's mm -hmm. it. All it is is just try something, see if it works. Try something, see if it works. And I think that's it. That's all I want to do is try things and see if they work. I don't even know what that is. As like, It's not a methodology. It's not a framework or a theory. It's just action, I guess. <laughs>
So I feel like they're okay. And Google it because like I've I've had someone tell me about this research type, you know, umbrella term before, but it's like something action research. Youth participatory youth participatory action research. Possibly. I mean, yeah. I don't study youth, so they probably didn't use that part of it, but yes. Your participatory action research, right? Yeah. That doesn't sound wrong. Yeah. yeah. I do, you know, that's that that is that is yeah, I used action, you know, inaccurately because there are types of research that are active. They're just not all necessarily trying to, to, you know, dismantle the structure. I'm not dismissing that. So in that sense, it would be related to that sort of research. Right. No, I hear you. So. Oh, well, everything we know came up the first time at some point. So here we are. Yeah, because I think that like, that that's gotta be that's gotta be my goal. It is my goal, right? It's like, and I think part of the reason people don't really want to do it because it's messy. But you know, in my head and just like you, it's messy up here, and it's okay for things to be messy. The world is messy, so yes. I don't think we need to try to make everything neat. I think that is exactly why we want things to be neat what we can control we want to because the rest of it we can't i think it's just human nature in that way i mean it's not good because it leads to this perpetuation but if the world is messy let me try to contain what i can and then here we are sitting around doing nothing because it's easy yep whole lot of nothing well Rachel, Dr. Amos, thank you for having this discussion. Thank uh, you. It was, it was interesting to really try to consider the ways that um, doing this work in, you know, in yourself and in school and in your field, you know, it, 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 it's, it's an ongoing effort. And I think sometimes the more, because as the show has become just an interviews, white women about the things that they do in terms of whiteness, um, not exclusively, but often, uh, it, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's useful to hear different approaches to doing this sort of thing. Um, and yeah, thanks for talking to me about it. Thank you. This was fun. I appreciate it.